Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi there. Just before we get to the next episode with Major General Roger Noble, a quick request. I have now published 10 episodes of the podcast, and while I have greatly enjoyed recording and editing the episodes, I would love to hear what you think. I've created a short survey that would help me capture your input and thoughts. I promise it won't take any longer than two minutes, but it will help me shape the direction of the voices of war. You can find the link to the survey in the show notes. Thank you for your time and support. And now, let's get back to the episode with General Noble. My guest today is Major General Roger Noble, AO, DSC, CSC. He recently retired from the Australian Defence Force as a senior officer in the Australian Army. He joined the Army in 1984 and was commissioned into the Royal Australian Armoured Corps. During his, his extensive career, he has commanded the 2nd Cavalry Regiment, the Al Muthana Task Group in Iraq, and was also commander 3 Brigade. Throughout his years of service, he has deployed six times on operations to East Timor, Afghanistan, and Iraq. In 2016, he was seconded to the United States Army, where he served as Deputy Coalition Land Force Commander in Iraq, and subsequently as Deputy Commander General North in the United States Army Pacific. His final role in the military was as the Head of Military Strategic Commitments at the Australian Defence Force Headquarters. Most recently, General Noble was appointed as the Ambassador for Counterterrorism and is responsible for leading Australia's international engagements. He also represents Australia in, at bilateral, regional and multilateral forums. Academically, General Noble holds a Master in International Public Policy, a Master of Business Administration, a Master of Defence Studies and a Bachelor of Arts in Military History. He's also currently undertaking a PhD in Strategy and Operations in the 21st Century. General, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Mass. How are you? Good, thanks. And, and just before we started recording, I also had to make sure that I check uh, the most appropriate title that I refer to you as, as I'm, uh, while I acknowledge that you are now out of the military, yeah. I'll, re- I'll, I'll address you as general, uh, if that's okay with you. It's okay. Roger's fine, but general's okay. <laughs> too, too indoctrinated, too indoctrinated. Uh, general, you've had an exciting and uh, long military career. And before we delve into some of those experiences, which you'll certainly look to do, Maybe we can go back to where it all, uh, I guess, began. What made you join the military back in 1984? Oh, yeah, I didn't want to wear a suit to work, so I failed in the long run. But no, I kind of, I was a cadet at school and I liked history. And uh, I kind of wanted to do things involved in the world. And the, the military definitely does that. Not always in the best fun way possible, but it's certainly it's involved in action and doing things. So that's what attracted me to the profession as a pretty young boy, really. Mm. And and talking about action, I mean, I guess you saw action fairly soon into your career or? Uh, I was a captain. I was a captain. So I was what I was probably about eight years in. Uh, As a young officer, I went to Iraq and 1992 with the United Nations Special Commission Iraq just after the first Gulf War as a member of the Chemical Destruction Group and not many people know but the UN oversaw the destruction of mainly chemical weapons and chemical precursors 
all across the country. So that was my first tour. So I was 28, I think, was a thing and an experience of a lifetime. <laughs> How so? Well, I went by myself. So I was down there. So, and there was a very small team and we lived in Baghdad, unarmed, not in uniform, in a war that, in a place that had just fought a war. But we were the, technically the enemy. So our entire existence hung on the, with the Iraqis and their ability to both support us and then protect us and then enable what we were doing. So, you know, it was a pretty wild place in 1992. Yeah, and this is while you, uh, just correct me, uh, you were overseeing the destruction of chemical weapons. Yeah, so there was, uh, after the war, part of the post-war arrangements were to, the Iraqis had to centralise all their weapons of mass destruction, declare them, and then the big, by far the biggest amount was uh, chemical weapons, which they had thousands and thousands and thousands of rockets and artillery shells, plus large amounts of what's called precursors, so the chemicals that you use to make chemical weapons. So we spent most of our time in a place called al Mathana, not the province that I would later go to, but the plant <laughs> north uh, west of Baghdad in the desert where they were centralised and then we destroyed them and with the Iraqis. So it was a hot, interesting work, hand in hand with the Iraqis. And and would you consider that was a success back in 92? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. So, I mean, I think the that we did destroy the, their chemical weapons stockpiles and it was largely collaborative. The whole thing occurred in a very tense international period. There was a non-stop pressure between the United Nations, Iraq, and key stakeholders like the US. So all around us was friction and inspections and the odd cruise missile flying through the air. It was a very uh, tense time, but pretty exciting and interesting. Yes, and certainly for, a, well, at that stage, a young captain, I'd imagine it would have been a, quite an exciting place to be, especially as the only Australian. Yeah, well, others came. I just went initially by myself, but then we had a pretty small group of Australians in the end, about, I think, three or four in my time, doing different things. But, you know, we would do everything, look for weapons of mass destruction, support inspection teams, destroy nerve agent rockets. It was uh, kept us busy. Yeah, and I find that uh, quite an interesting unplanned segue because i think it will loop back onto that because i think yeah. we went back to iraq in 2003 obviously to seek out those very uh same weapons uh, yeah. arguably under some really bad information <laughs> yeah well that's the argument about so the quick i mean the iraqis had weapons of mass destruction no question on it During, in 2003 yeah oh no but in 1992 hmm. the question is did they have any in 2003 yeah. And, you know, chemical weapons are called a weapon of mass destruction and they are technically and are legally, but they're a little, and they're a little bit different to nuclear weapons. So, um, yeah, they, they're one class. But, I, I mean, I, I think the UN Special Commission was confident it destroyed the chemical weapons stockpiles by the time it wrapped up its work. Hmm. I mean, you went back to Iraq and I think, was it, what, what was the next time you were? 05. 05. Five as a battle group when I went back into southern Iraq after the invasion of 2003, Australia recommitted. We had some forces there at the beginning, special forces mainly, and the battle group back in 05. And 
who were the first ones to go back in again. Right. How was that experience compared to 92? Yeah, well, it's different. So, uh, yeah, much different context. Having been there in 92, I'd kind of, I'd seen Saddam, Saddam Hussein's regime, which not many people actually did. And I knew what it was like to be an Iraqi or to be under that regime. And in southern Iraq, it was the most tough uh, because of the politics, tribal, religious differences. So I had, I knew exactly how tough it could be to be an Iraqi under him. And then to go back in after his fall in that period of, was pretty chaotic when they were rebuilding Iraq effectively and trying to stand up a government, which they hadn't, even under him, it was very centralised and autocratic. So they didn't really have a bureaucracy. They didn't really have any many trained people. So they were trying to make it all work and build a, a new democratic system. So they had a lot on their plate, the Iraqis. And they were carrying the scars of war, which were pretty dramatic, particularly in the South, where they had been subject to persecution and violence for a long time. Around Basra? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, in the South, he, oh, he remember, people will remember the after the war, and call them the Marsh Arabs, but the southern Iraqis and the contention around repression of them. And I saw the, so in 2005, one afternoon, a Iraqi national came into the base that we were in southern Iraq and said, I want to show you where all the bodies are buried. And it wasn't a metaphor, it was real. So I went out at dusk with the British colonel that I was with and uh, we were walking across the desert, about very close to the base in the middle of the desert. And we could see something on the ground. We went up and it was a skeleton in the ground. And it was old. And then we looked up and as far as you could see, about every 10 feet was another one. Mm. And I said, when, when were these people killed? And they said, oh, Saddam, after the first war, he, they would kill everybody on Thursday afternoons and take their bodies into the desert and bury them. So for the Iraqis, it's been a very long, particularly in southern Iraq and the Shia in southern Iraq, it had been a pretty difficult 50 years. And here they were, we were coming back in when they were, they had a bit more control on their own destiny and they were trying to work it out. So it was quite good, basically, is the answer to your question. The mission was pretty positive. It was very closely aligned in support of the Iraqis and with the local government. And the most Iraqis wanted us there. They didn't want us there forever. And they didn't just want men with guns. They wanted more than that, like a engagement in future. But it was I was struck by how positive most normal everyday Iraqis were at having us there. And they kind of knew that Iraq's future was in their hands. So it was good to be part of that. And then, you know, there's always adversaries and violence and people trying to undermine it, which we were focused on as well. Mm. I found it interesting that you saw, as in your your reflection on ninety two to then two thousand and five, you saw yeah. the life of an Iraqi under the Saddam regime, and then coming back in two thousand and five and seeing how that uh, hope transpired within the Iraqi population. What's happened yeah. since? I mean, because I mean, you know, it's obviously no secret. Uh, <laughs> Iraq is, uh, you know, and and I was in Iraq in 2018 as a civilian, as a development co- yeah. consultant, and it was a, it was certainly not a place that one would call 
uh, a military success by any stretch of the imagination, really. Yeah, well, see, I disagree, frankly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I went back to Spain, the ISIL held 40% of Iraq, all up, all the most of the Euphrates River Valley, less Ramadi, all the way down to just north of Baghdad, including they hold Fallujah and Mosul. They're uh, threatening Baghdad itself. So, in the space of the year, the Iraq, mainly the Iraqis, supported by the coalition, managed to turn that all around. It took them a while, but they evicted ISIS and uh, retook their key cities like Mosul and Fallujah, and went a long way to reaffirming the Iraqi state. And you can't take that off them. That's a spectacular success, actually. Now, does that mean all the terrorists are gone or all the violent extremists are gone or the root causes are all dealt with? No. Those things go back a long, long way. And there are kind of grievances, tribal, cultural, religious, that are deep and they're still there. So what you're seeing now is the Iraqis, through the government that they built in a pretty short space of time, I mean, countries like Australia and the United States are centuries old. You know, they've built their system since basically 2000 and I think election when I was there, 2005. They've built a kind of democratic state and trying to piece together all the bits. So they get a lot of criticism, but I always look at them and go, you're pretty amazing, actually, that you hold it all together. Now, it's not Switzerland. I always used to say to them, I'd love to come back on a holiday because it's a fantastic place. I'd love to drive around Baghdad, check out all the history and then go down the south and drive through the old testament you know you can't do that yet but i'm kind of hopeful that they'll get there eventually we've got to cut them some slack because they've kind of come a long way really quickly with a, under a lot of duress and the other thing they don't get is credit for how much of that is up to them like the coalition can help outsiders can help and they're very important you know not just military help but all the other kinds but in the end, the Iraqis have to do it. So I'm kind of, I give them a big tick and wish them all the best. And it's, you know, it's not all beer and Skittles. So they get hit by COVID too, you know what I mean? <laughs> and they've got to deal with those ongoing issues of, you know, grievance and social, cultural, religious angst, which are not easy and they're centuries old. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah, I'll maybe clarify what I meant. I was certainly talking about the Western, the coalition strategy and mission, uh, you know, first going into Afghanistan, then Iraq, then back Afghanistan, rather than the local. Yeah, right. Know, the, the locals are there. And, and, and again, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll just use, uh, you know, some of my own anecdotes from the Bosnian war. The locals adapt yeah. exceptionally quickly to the, you know, yeah. they're used to that ecosystem uh, and surviving arguably in an ecosystem, you know, with all the foreign influence coming in. Uh, it was more perhaps poorly uh, asked question referring to the Western involvement and our own planning strategy and how that then translated into, I guess, tactical decisions. Mm. Well, the big question is, you know, should they have gone in in 2003? And I'm not going to answer that. I'll just say this, they did. Well, that's a, that's, but that's a, but that's a, maybe I'll push you on that. Why, why is that? I mean, and, and, and conscious of your role, obviously, and, and now you're speaking oh, as Mr. Oh, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not speaking for anyone but myself. So I'd make the observation that it's geopolitics, countries act in their interest, 
and there was a pretty big coalition, not as big as other coalitions, but who made that decision for a variety of reasons to intervene. So I kind of go, the historians will write long books about it. And I think a Joanne Lai that apparently was asked by the French at some point, you know, what do you think, or somebody asked him, what do you think of the French Revolution in the 1970s? And he said, ah, it's too soon to tell. <laughs> so it's about when you measure things as well. So anyway, having said all that, which is a, people might think it's a cop out, but, you know, I'm a soldier. I was, so I am. And the ground reality is it happened. We were there. Most Iraqis wanted us there, most of them. You know, no question a bunch of them didn't. And not many of them want us to be there forever either. So they want us to go. But the general man on the street, most streets, was kind of glad the coalition was there because it represented interest and commitment from the rest of the world. So I found at the micro level, particularly in the South, it was easy. It wasn't a struggle. You didn't feel out of place. You felt you had a place. <laughs> Which they, and the good thing about the Iraqis is I'll always tell you, you don't have to wait around to be told. They'll explain to you like what they want you to do and not to. I call them the Australians of the Middle East because they're kind of pragmatic and got a good sense of humour, which you really need if you're an Iraqi. I just found it really easy to get on with. So on the micro level, I thought we were doing good work helping them, doing what the majority wanted, helping them build their own country. And then, you know, they had all the same basic premises we have. You know, they wanted people to obey the law. You know, we take that for granted in Australia, really. We all kind of do what we're told. They don't. So they were going through the dialogue about why you should obey the law, not just a given. And we were, I used to participate in those discussions um, with lots of Iraqis. So it was a net positive thing at a pretty grim time. 2005 was very difficult for the coalition. It was not going well up north in the Sunni Triangle. People were talking about leaving, and it was before the surge. So, but for us, my experience was re remarkably positive. And when I went back in 2016, we were fighting up north, we went down south. I got messages from Iraqis from Mathana. How are you going? What's going on? Like, so they remembered us well and our contribution was respected. In fact, one day I was talking to an Iraqi on the side of the road in Mathana as a lieutenant colonel and he rings on the phone, he's talking in Arabic and he goes, oh, it's the Prime Minister, he wants to talk to you. So I'm talking to the Prime Minister of Iraq <laughs> on the telephone on the side of the road. He starts giving me feedback on our performance. <laughs> I said, oh, oh, how do I tell the chain of command this one? Let's play Iraq. They all got three mobile phones and everybody talks to each other nonstop. So, That's one way to get your uh, deployment report, I guess. <laughs> But that's a, again, that's a really interesting point. And I think one that, that echoes something that you've been very vocal on, and that is this idea of understanding, you know, a, a particular ecosystem. And by ecosystem, I mean the architecture of a place, you know, whether that is the social links, whether that is the economic links that exist in the background, you know, the political links that don't, that, that give a place color. Uh, where we'd like to present it as black and white. And I think you've been quite vocal about that and also the cultural dynamics. And that's an interesting point. They all have three yeah. mobile phones. 
Yeah, it's not it's not Australia. And if you're dumb enough to, and the West has a bit of a habit of doing it, turn up and think they're like us or they should be. <laughs> so we're going to turn you into us. I mean, it's kind of, I would argue, the height of folly if to start like that. So we had three rules as a battle group, which you've just reminded me of. They're pretty simple. One was be culturally aware, keep a low profile, stay in the corner of their eye. So I wanted them to know we were always there, we are always watching, we are always going to do what we need to do, but not in your face. Don't have to do that. It's your country. So, you know, I actually at the time I met the enemy. They asked her to meet me, which was the enemy, one of the enemies was Josh Mahdi. So the army of God that translates it. But they were really, they were not the Al-Qaeda, Sunni, terrorist, Zarqawi mob. In fact, they were enemies of them. They were southern nationalist Iraqi grouping who didn't want the coalition there. So different kind of enemy in their own ground on their own place. And they said, we want to have a talk to you. So I went to see them in the deputy governor's office with the British. I'll never forget as long as I live because the first thing I noticed is they were terrified of us, which I was kind of, they thought we were, we were going to map them or shoot them or something. The very first thing they said was, we, we need to make a statement before we talk. And the governor was the mediator. Deputy governor said, is that okay? They said, yeah, fill your boots. And then the, they go, the coalition must leave Iraq. And then the British guy was with friend. Oh, that's handy because that's our plan. <laughs> and then they looked at us and we said, so the, the question is, when do we leave? Not if we're going to leave. It's when do we leave? And they, you know, they laughed when we said that was our plan. So we started and we realised, yeah, we have common, we don't want to stay there forever, but these are the conditions under which you'll accelerate our departure, you know, which took us into a discussion about rule of law, the authority of the elected government, the use of violence. It was remarkably constructive. And, and then they were able to say to us, I said, one of the things that really unhelpful that you think we shouldn't do, that we don't have to do. And they said to me, can you not drive armoured vehicles near the schools when the kids are at school? And I said, sure. You know, wouldn't do it in Australia. You know what I mean? So I said, sure, no worries. And I said, but if something happens in a school and, you, you know, when we have to go there, we will. And they kind of went, yeah, all right. And I said, so nothing should happen in schools. That's where the kids are. And we all agreed that, like, sounds simple, right? We can agree to that. Now we watch the schools closely, <laughs> make sure that, you know, that's not a, a ruse for something else. But that was just a legitimate ask, I think, to this day. They were saying, stay away from the kids if you can. Totally reasonable. We didn't have to do that to achieve our mission. And it was, it was a point of where we could agree with them, you know what I mean? So I think the lesson I took from it was you've got to know the enemy and uh, you're not necessarily going to talk to them all the time. Like you're not going to talk to Al-Qaeda probably. But if you can and you can have a dialogue and the better you understand them, the better your chances are that you'll do better against them because you'll understand them better. It's not rocket science. So I'm not a fan of the international school. There's a, it's pretty strong. It says, you're the enemy, I'm not talking to you. 
at any level because it, all it does is defeat your ability to understand what them and the problem. So I think that goes tactical to strategic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also humanizes the enemy, uh, you know, even, you know, quote unquote enemy, humanizes and, and makes us realize that, hold on, they actually, you know, they care about. I started you know, I started to talk about them differently after I met them. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't so, use the word enemy so much because they weren't really our enemy. They were... They were the locals with a view <laughs> with guns, right? So if they start using the guns on us or other people, then they're the enemy. That's the kind of dialogue I had with them. I said, well, we don't care. You can wear your Joshua Money T-shirt around town. You can have a big demonstration, which they often did. I said, we're not going to stop you. We don't, it's not our business. It's Iraq, you know. But if you start shooting people or blowing things up, or uh, killing the police, or well, we're going to come down and you'll like a ton of bricks. They kind of—that sounds really reasonable to us because that's how we are. That that's not necessarily how the culture is there, and it's not quite as structured. And they gave me that feedback, you know. But one of them said to me once, not the not a Joshua Muddy guy, but a, a right local. He said to me, "You're very hard to understand, you people." And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you've got all these rules about when you'll fight and when you won't fight. But when you start fighting, you don't stop till everybody's dead. And he said, we're quite different. We have less rules about when you fight, but we fight. And then we, once we start, we stop pretty quick and we work it out. And they gave me some examples. That's pretty common in the tribal dynamic. And they said, why do you do that <laughs> to me? Why are you so... Why do you just go to the nth degree? And it made me think, you know, we're Western soldiers. That's what we do. <laughs> that's our construct, you know what I mean? Like there's all these rules about the use of force, uh, which we understand in a kind of second nature and tied to the law. And But once we're across that line, we go into overdrive, you know, stay in accordance with the law, but we, that kind of, what's the, why do you do that? So two cultures are looking at each other in a, you know, quite wondering why the other one's crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, again, that's such a nuanced point. Uh, you know, looking at each other ultimately through the, through the scope of a rifle, thinking, geez, they're crazy bastards from yeah. both ends. Yeah, and I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, again, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, it's quite easy for me to say this. You, you've been quite vocal about this and you, your reputation amongst the ranks is that you're quite outspoken about the lessons uh, that you've certainly learnt, and you certainly don't hold punches either. But one of the things that you you also brought up in the recent course, where you were uh, a guest and received some um, some presentations from a conflict analysis class, where we were looking at uh, culture and cultural briefs. And whilst it's very obvious that you you get it, and because of all your experiences and actually having reflected on all those lessons, you were the first ones to say that. You know, you're still stuck in your own ways and and that there's a certain way that you lead a war. And you also, I think, made a reflection on senior leadership in general, having been shaped in a certain way or or knowing how to fight war in a certain way. Well, I think one of the key things is self-awareness. And that's individual, but it's also organisational. So, you know, everyone talks about the coalition like it's a unified thing. You know, it could be Afghanistan. 2001 when I went, it was 51 countries, or 2012. So that's nothing much unified about that other than the badge on the door. 
So, you know, you have to really look hard at the members of it, what their agendas are, what their culture is. And I mean, you, if you tell me European NATO culture is the same as the US military culture, they're just not. Now, a lot of things in common, but they ain't the same. So command and control orders, um, the way you do business, the command, staff, all those things are all different and they're all different in each country. So when we were in 2016, when I went back as a deputy land force commander in Iraq, one of our lines of effort, we only had three, one of them was maintain the coalition. So we spent a lot of time talking to the coalition and working out so that we never hit those points that sometimes arise where you get to a, a point of great angst because you haven't worked it out in advance. So I think that, and then understanding your own military culture is very important. And then how others see you. So that's what I, you know, when I met the, the Jaish al guys and they were terrified of me, it was a shock. <laughs> I didn't see us as terrifying, you know. But they were terrified of us. And I went, okay, you know, we are oh, a bit terrifying when we've got all these guns and tanks and stuff. So that's, uh, we've got to spend a bit of time doing the anthropological introspection on ourselves and, you know, how we think and how we view the world, particularly when you go into other people's space, Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor, you can be the strongest nation on the planet. You can be the most powerful coalition in the world. If you're not self-aware and you're not connected with the people, you're probably not going to be successful in anything other than blowing stuff up and killing people. If that's what you're doing, then you you know you might get away with it. But if you and few interventions or wars or are about that, it's a, normally there's something else like you're trying to get to a resolution or a position that involves people who are alive. And so spending more and more time looking at them. And the more different they are, the more different, the more effort you need to put in. But I always say this as well, a lot of Australians, you know, oh, we're the same as the Americans, you know. We're not the same as the Americans. We got a lot in common. We speak the same language. We laugh at the same jokes. We watch their TV. They watch our movies. But we are we have different histories, different cultures, very, very different, different laws. And if you can sometimes for a foul of those simplistic assumptions, oh, we're the same as them. So even your closest friends, and I probably shouldn't say New Zealand's a good example too. You know, Australians make the mistake of thinking New Zealand's just the eighth state or whatever. It is not. It is a very different country and culture and history. So even your friends who you think you know, you got, should be spending time on understanding them and then not become complacent. Oh, I understood them. I, went, I worked with them five years ago. I know what's going on. So, yeah, focus on that soft, cultural, anthropological kind of worldview is, a, I think, an absolute must. And it applies in great power competition or counterinsurgency or, you know, peacekeeping. It's important in all of them. Yeah, and I particularly like the point about self-awareness because it, it suggests that we need to do an anthropological study of ourselves first before we actually look to understand others. Because I think you, you're making that very point that we don't, we don't necessarily always reflect on our own, A, organizational culture, and B, our national culture yeah. that we carry. And if we don't necessarily reflect on our own, how 
how can we be successful in understanding someone else, right? So I'll give you a practical, simple example. In 2012, I'm in somewhere in Afghanistan, Wardak, I think. And then there's some Afghan National Army base and there's a bunch of US Army going there. They're doing a fantastic job. We were talking and they go, and one of them goes, they just won't fight, you know. They won't fight enough. They're not committed enough. And then, you know, we train them and we give them out. And I said, okay. I said, I said, what's the Kazavak, the casualty evacuation system for the Afghan army here? And they all kind of, uh, you know, yeah, you get shot, you get put in the back of a ute and you drive six hours south till you get to the hospital. That's the plan, right? And I said, okay, how do you reckon we'd go? What's our casualty evacuation plan? You know? Sometimes it applied to the Afghans and sometimes it didn't. So, I know we get a helicopter and we're in a we're in a first world hospital, best hospitals you can be in in less than an hour, almost invariably, often way way less. I said, so if you're going up that hill to fight the Taliban or whatever the hell we're going to up the hill to fight, and you know that's happening to you, or you got a six hour ride in the back of a Ford Ranger on a shitty road to a bad hospital, do you think you might change your behaviour? <laughs> like, so that that's a simple, and even though they're deeply in it, they kind of, they got themselves mentally in a position where they couldn't see what it was like to be an Afghan. You know, they, you know what are they getting paid? Where are they from? You know, so we're in Wardak, I think, and these guys are from up north. They're not even from that part of Afghanistan, which is, you know, a lot more serious than not being a Queenslander in Victoria, you know what I mean? Really, really made a difference. So I think tactical to strategic, you know, the more time you've got that you can spend on understanding the acute quarter of the ecosystem, that's pretty good. And the people mainly, it's the people, um, the better you'll probably do. Or you'll at least increase your chances of not making a really stupid mistake. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think Afghanistan is a prime example, right? I mean, it's it's now being, you know, researched to all ends as arguably a gross misunderstanding of, and again, I'll just use that word ecosystem because I think it depict, depicts the dynamics that exist within a place. And also when we come into a place like Afghanistan, we become part of that ecosystem. We bring a certain inertia, a certain uh-huh. momentum with us. We empower certain players. We disable others. Yeah. You know, we, we, we become an organism within that space uh, and and again i think afghanistan is a prime example particularly looking now that uh you know talk about not talking to the enemy well uh you know the yeah. enemy quote unquote now now commands two-thirds of the country by most estimates i.e the taliban yeah yeah you remember they're the locals as well <laughs> they live there so the i think that uh i mean i saw in afghanistan one of the most striking things to me was nobody could read. And I'd, Iraq, everybody is pretty well educated. They could read, right? So that plus Iraq is flat, basically, and Afghanistan isn't. Those two differences fundamentally change everything. So the mountains of Afghanistan, which look spectacular from a distance and really steep up close, combined with the fact that nobody can read, makes communication and understanding amongst the Afghans themselves really difficult. So here's a simple, what does that mean? Well, that means in a place like Afghanistan, the radio is really important. So if you're going to pass a message, you do it on the radio. 
in Iraq, you can drop a leaflet, you can publish things, you can, they use TV a lot more because the infrastructure is flat country and they're good TV, good reception. So, you know, something as simple as those two things have such a profound, I get quite annoyed when I hear people compare the two wars because they're just totally different. They've got things in common and they were connected because, not because they're in, they're like, but because the people fighting both wars were the same group of people, the coalition, you know. We were going to Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq, like the Americans, like everybody else. So they're connected and they've got similarities, but the two places are totally different. So it's a, and you, it takes a bit of effort to, you know, every time a rotation of troops goes somewhere, they shouldn't have to learn that. They shouldn't. They should be going in front end loaded. How do we do that? You've got to front end load it into the force. Um, and, you know, we try to do that. I think probably the other big mistake is we don't go long enough. So, you know, Australia was doing six months rotations, which I just, actually, that's the long ones. The, some of the services were doing shorter. I don't know how you kind of learn anything in six months. Like if you're, it depends on your job. I think the commanders and the key intelligence officers and the kind of civil military guys, you got to be going for a long time is what I would be doing. Having a more of a posting mindset rather than a deployment mindset. And the Americans do it with their senior officers. So you'll see commander on ISAF do three years, maybe longer. Same in Iraq, but you know, these six month cycles makes it really tough. The US Army at the height of the Afghan thing, so the Iraq surge, I think they're doing 15 months. So pretty tough, 15 months. And then I think by the time I went back to 2016, they were still doing nine with no leave. So the, you know, that, that constant cycle where you're not, as much as you're involved and it could be life and death for you, you don't live there. And you're just getting through to the, you know, can I get to my six month mark or whatever? That changes your mindset and your, you know, your commitment and your understanding. So that's something to think about length of tours and then the kind of preparation force package, which we did and we did reasonably well. But I think for key leaders, you could, we could probably do it a bit deeper and a bit better. And then source experts who know the place back to front and send them in as well if they'll go. <laughs> so, anyway, that's just some thoughts. Yeah. No, no, that's, uh, again, really, really interesting. I mean, it, how, how well understood do you think that problem is at the senior kind of levels, defence? I think it's very much experience-based and... You know, it's pretty hard if you're flying a jet fighter out of a third country in the middle of the night, dropping bombs to understand why you need any kind of cultural awareness. <laughs> and it's not key to your success because you're, it's just the nature of the job, you know. Or if you're a ship in the Gulf, you might need it for boarding dows or whatever. But if you haven't done it and you haven't seen it, you might think, oh, what, why am I waste my time doing all that soft stuff when, in fact, it's critical? So a very senior American special forces officer 
got a job in, I'd known him one of the tours and I saw him back again. He had a senior job and he said, he said to me quietly one day, he said, everybody comes up and asks me about Afghanistan and Afghans. And he said, this is the first road tour I've ever had in Afghanistan where I just wasn't getting out of a helicopter in the middle of the night and shooting at things. So now I'm talking to them. And he said, you know, he'd done, I think, seven tours, but his actual interaction because of his job with normal Afghans in normal circumstances was very low. It was coming out of a helicopter in the dark. So he, he had the self-awareness and the smarts to know that. <laughs> so it's very much, I think, based on personal experience. And then armies, I think, have a natural, they kind of work it out quickly because young officers and soldiers work it out real quick. The better you know the people you're walking around, the better chance you have of surviving the day and getting the job done on a man. But if you haven't done it and you haven't really seen it, it's, it becomes an intellectual thing and most people agree. But then in all the competing things that you need to do, you know, it might not be as important as what someone like me might think it is, you know what I mean? So I think it's patchy, although in our doctrine we do say it, um, and we've, you know, we've got plenty of experience of it, but going back a long, long time. So we're reasonable. I would think we could be better. We should probably prioritise it a bit more institutionally would be my answer. Yeah, and I guess also the fact that, you know, we're training for the fight, right? We're training soldiers yeah. and officers for the yeah. fight. You know, it's a, it's it's almost a, you know, talk about a three-block war. I mean, this is, you know, to the, no, to the nth degree, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, there's no shortage of stuff to do. Mm. So, you know, you've got to better fire weapons and operate your systems and fly the plane and, you know, it's it's professional soldiering now. And I mean, the Army, Navy, Air Force is a full-time professional business, complex systems. So finding time to do everything is, you know, like everything, probably impossible. But I think it pays you back in spades if you do understand the environment and you do understand who you're fighting and you do understand what you call the ecosystem, or at least part of the force does, <laughs> in shooting detail, the better you'll be. I mean, the number of times in Afghanistan something happened, and I used to carry the book around, the bear came over the mountain, which was the Russian POR for Afghanistan, post-operational report in English translation, and I just opened it and find they did exactly the same thing to the Russians and nobody in the intelligence staff had read the book or bothered to, you know, background rockets. Oh. Well, there's a chapter on it in the book. <laughs> like, it tells you where they put the rockets. The first big fight at the beginning was, or well, one of the first big fights was the Battle of Anaconda in 2002 and they shot down two... I think they were Ranger CH-47 uh, and we lost some U US SEALs up in the right up high in the um, Shawali Cot. And SAS were there and played a very important role protecting the Rangers who were shot down. Very important role, uh, quietly on the side. And then I pulled out the bear come over the mountain and hey, here's the helicopter ambush conducted by the Russian, by the Mujahideen and the Russians in exactly the same place. 
and they fired the heavy machine guns from exactly the same place down through the rotor blades of the helicopters because at that altitude the helicopters are slow and they got above the helicopter ceiling and they shot down through and i just went we really should have read that book you know what i mean or i didn't where were the russians Asked them. Now, I don't know that they would have rushed to help us, but did we? And, it, and I, that's not silly because when I went to Tampa in 01 in October, the Russians were there. They were, they were on the base because I know because the colonel I used to talk to got arrested by the Americans. They'd been waiting 50 years for the Russians to turn up by mistake. But, um, you know, that, it's not silly. Why weren't we talking to the Russians? post September 11th about Afghanistan, and there's a bunch of reasons. <laughs> but I think we could have read their books. They were definitely published. And, you know, that kind of data mining of previous experience, you've got to do that, I think, in the 21st century. Yeah. And I think that's um, it. That, that we could, sorry, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, that's it. We could have done it better, yeah. I think. And I think that'll take me to to a to next point. Uh, but, but I just want to, before we get yeah. to that, I just want to, pick up on something you said, uh, it strikes me that perhaps, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on this, that we might be throwing the military solution at problems that aren't necessarily always military problems. Yeah. Is that? Well, I think, well, I mean, <laughs> the big investment in militaries, I mean, and often it's the quickest available tool and the only one that can get there, and it can do a whole bunch of stuff besides just shoot people. And so it's the go-to toolbox. It's a Western thing too, like go to the military to fix stuff. And it's the most concrete and immediate thing. So even the bushfires last year, you know, the federal government, the states have firefighters and the federal government doesn't. You know, it's got the ADF and a bunch of other, actually, money basically is its powerful weapon. And states don't have a lot of immediate response options generally that they can generate and the military's purpose designed for that. So that's one of the reasons. I think we use it because we got it and we can. And then there's probably a, a cultural thing about militarize, the Western world, you could argue, likes to militarize things. But all the other things are super important as well, and they take time. So, you know, there's a, at the moment, I think the de-ISIL, this is, I can say this in my current job, the Defeat ISIL Global Coalition is running a stabilisation pledge drive, seeking money to help rebuild Iraq and Syria and give humanitarian assistance, you know what I mean? Those things are just as important. They take time. Often the military is needed to build the space to be able to do it. So if you don't have security, humanitarian actors can't get there. So when I went to Iraq in 05, there were no NGOs in Iraq, in the southern Iraq. And it was because, you remember Zarqawi, that distinguished Iraqi gentleman no longer with, he was cutting everybody's heads off. So the NG you went there and it was devoid of, you would normally expect to see NGOs helping in the local community, filling the gaps while everything's in crisis. They just weren't there because they were getting beheaded and kidnapped. So often the military is also first because it can get there and then give that space to enable the other pieces to be able to come in. Uh, so that it needs to more. 
So if you look in East Timor, military went in first. As time went on, the police effort built up, the kind of humanitarian and the interagency multiple diplomatic economic support tools were able to find space and operate. So that's a long answer, but um, it's a combination of reasons why we do turn to the military. I think it's not just us, we do it. Lots of countries do it. And, and I've heard you talk about this elsewhere, and it strikes me as, as particularly relevant for this point, is this idea of narrative or the power of narrative, uh, you know, that, that there is this, that there is a story that we're living as opposed to, you know, this is not just a military solution, but it is a, there is an entire narrative about how we're going to, A, conduct this conflict, and then B, how we're going to help close off the conflict and rebuild and then finally, of course, a C, how we actually then depart and leave a place in, in, in a better state than we arguably found it. Do you, do you want to comment on that? Because I think that's a, that's a again, it's a... No, I think yeah. that's always been necessary. In the 21st century, it's vital. So I would say, you know, he with the best narrative wins. And you, because it can be transmitted globally immediately, everybody's got a phone, everybody's got a TV, and you've got to have your messaging right. So we went into Iraq in 05 and I was talking to the governor and he, at the beginning, before I knew him very well, and he said, well, you know, he said, really the last thing we need is more people with guns. <laughs> that's what he said to me. It's like the second thing he said to me. And I realised that's how we'd kind of come to do security. But we needed a narrative about the future of Iraq and why the coalition was a good thing for that. And that... Part of that was security, but a lot of it was about, hey, this is your future in the world, you know, and we are the world. So that's compelling, you know, and then they want to talk about Australia, not the Australian army. They want to talk about Australia and they, they're all, so they're all, it's a heavily agricultural, right? So dry land farming, irrigation, all the things that are big in Australia, we know a lot about. And they knew we knew a lot about it. They were asking me about me. I don't know about dryland farming. I was able to go to the embassy and say, hey, these are the things they're interested in. So one of the things was, believe it or not, chickens and immunisation of chickens against chicken disease. I can't remember which ones. And they were really struggling with it. And we, with a small amount of money, we were able to get veterinary expertise and immunisation for hardly any money, that they just thought was the bee's knees. And they were, like, very thankful for it. And then, you know, then you can put up with the guys with guns because we're not just here out of our, our selfish national interest when we are, but we're also here because we do think you're worthwhile and we do want you to do well and we do want this country to, to go ahead and we're risking a lot to do it, so... So the narrative has got to be thought through and it's got to be different audiences need a different narrative. I did talk back Rose radio into Mosul in 2016, believe it or not, when the ISIS had it just before we attacked. So I went up to Erbil and just did talk back radio. People were ringing me up from Mosul with other, me and the Iraqi army, just asking us questions, you know. And so we had to have a... You know, they, the questions were, are you going to win? When are you coming? What should we do? <laughs> All the obvious things you would ask if you're about to get attacked, you know. And uh, we had to have a really clear message because we would explain to them 
what was going to happen and why, but we know the ISILs listening. We had a pretty clear message for them. And you've got to craft that. And it's got to be, I, here's the thing, it's got to be coherent and true. <laughs> if you want it to be compelling, it's got to be true. So this is not deception. Deception can be part of something, but your core narrative about what you're doing in the 21st century where it's spread instantly is really important. And if you can't articulate one yourself, you've probably got a problem because you may not clearly understand what you're doing there and why and the ecosystem that you're operating in. So the better, a better narrative is and the more resonant it is, is probably telling you how well that actor understands the situation there. And their role within it. And I, and I find it interesting, you, you've now referred to it three times as, you know, in the 21st century, in the 21st century, uh, which which talks very much to the perhaps a change in contemporary conflict. Uh, and this is yeah. something, again, I've heard you talk about elsewhere. But what, what, what is the contemporary conflict or war look like in your view? Or what, or what makes it different to, you know, days gone by? Well, I think it's, it's in more dom domains. Well, what's different is space, for a start. That's the domain that wasn't there for most of history. Can't talk much about it, but that makes it a global ubiquitous environment that has direct impacts on the ground. And then information domain's always been there. We now call it cyber and information, but now it's globally immediately connected. So, you know, in the First World War, the army went to Gallipoli and then a month later in the newspaper, they published a casualty list and you read the paper and you found out somebody was dead, right? Well, that eel knows straight away now. It might be uploaded on ISIS would attack, film the attack, kill everybody in the post they overrun and then upload it in time for us to use it in the briefs we would have in the day. Thing. So that's the world we're in. So UNHCR in 2016, I read an article saying they thought the most important thing a refugee needed used to be shelter, food and water. They said it's a telephone so that you can find shelter, food and water, and you know where to go and what, where not to go. So that's changed. So when you do, when you fight now, and you, we would do it regularly, you might do an attack in a particular place, but it might have a targeting influence action associated with it in another country, trying to pass a message or do something simultaneously around a tactical attack. That's pretty new that's this century you know what I mean and then the physical domains are still there so but they're connected by a digital framework and the reach and power of weapons and capacities is much greater so these ideas of locally constrained confined conflict is gone so even ISIS is not a state were masters of global information operations and messaging and did it on a, they didn't have all the stuff that states have. They were just doing it on the back of the internet and commercial networks. So that's reality. So if you're going to fight big wars against nation states across the five domains, it's going to be a global 24-7 multifaceted highly complex undertaking. So the notion that you can sit in Sydney and you'll be right, 
maybe a midget submarine will come and fire the odd round from Sydney Harbour. No way. No way. You're going to be in it. So the lights are out, internet's off. Yeah. Yeah. You go black. There's no satellites, whatever. The economy, globalised economy. So, yeah, I think that's the often, you know, human history to been pretty poor at predicting the nature of the next, you know, the First World War shocked the hell out of everybody. Second World War. <laughs> so I think my salutary lesson about wars is don't fight them unless you need to. And only fight them if they're absolutely necessary. That would be my... Uh, and then when you fight them, they suck. So even when, you, when you're successful, the cost is often very high and the price lasts a long time in the minds and lives of people, even when you win. So uh, I think that's the Duke of Wellington, isn't it? You know, the only thing worse than a... Uh, or the only thing worse than a battlefield where you've won is a battlefield where you lost. So... Or something like that. So I think, you know, they're very serious undertakings. And in the modern world, there'll be nowhere to hide. The reach will be deep. Normal people will be deeply impacted on it by it, I think, if, if it's at any scale. So that's not a very happy picture. No, and it shouldn't be. And that's the and I think that's the reality. If you're a military force, you need to get ready for that. You need to build people who are ready for that kind of ecosystem and reach. And then for nation states, they need to, or everybody actually, they need to think about the ramifications of going to war. Yeah, so serious business. I mean, that's the truth be told, that is absolutely the motivation behind this podcast, i.e. the voices of war. Uh, it's bringing to yeah. light, you know, the true costs of war through those who've lived it because of that very point, because I, I, I get the sense that we, oftentimes beat the drums of war or we talk about war as something very distant remote which for us australians has been yeah barring a very small percentage of australians who've gone overseas to war yeah uh, it's been something very distant something remote well we're very we've been very lucky i mean with the notable exception of the first australians who get forgotten that they fought a long war you know but the yeah that i'm the older I get, the less I like to, I don't like military metaphors much. I don't like war, war, because it's such a serious business. And often it's the, in the West, you have to be a veteran to have seen it because we, Australia tends to fight them in other people's countries. And that, that's not a, that's just part of the way it is for us, but that's been our history. So the population, uh, you'd have to go back other than the families of those who were killed, injured and damaged, you know, the physical, it's the Second World War, Australia was directly attacked the last time and it was a significant impact on the society. But, you know, you go to Iraq and see an Iraqi family, they still go to school in the middle of World War Three, in the middle of Ramadi. The kids will be getting on the bus, you know. It doesn't stop. Got to eat dinner, you know. Got to go check on the grandparents. <laughs> Yes, it, the one good news about wars, or all the places I've been in, is people are more the same than they're different. And that's the, I think that's the first line, first line of the anthropology book in the US introduction to anthropology is people are the same except for how they're different. Most people are, it's family, it's your kids, it's safety, security, getting a meal, 
it doesn't matter what culture you are. <laughs> and fathers want their families to live. And, you know, it's not rocket science. And mums want their kids to be safe. So that binds us, most people together. So in those places like Afghanistan and Iraq, it's actually a pretty small number of people who are unhappy enough to use violence and lethal force, but it doesn't take much. And in Australia, we, I think we, mercifully, we haven't had to experience it. So... I, and when you see, you've seen it, when you see it in other countries, you realise, oh, we've got all these things we do that we don't even know how important they are to us. Like, hey, we will stop at the the red light when it goes on. You know, and we just think, oh, of course you stop at the red light. Well, no, you don't have to. Like, so. Yeah, yeah that's not a given. That's a problem. That, you know, respect for the government, the trust in the legal system, the belief in policemen that they're going to treat you right and they're respectful. We've got all that. And for a lot of other countries, Afghanistan, 2012, I was talking to Afghan, he said, he, he said, you have to be 40 years old to even remember what a policeman was in Afghanistan. Because they used to have a police force a long way back, like ours. But we take it for granted. Oh, the police, they're the good guys who go to the footy and enforce the law and and are accountable and put the baddies in jail, you know, not so much in other countries. Anyway, that's the that's why Australia is such a good place. But it's also we've got to just be careful that we understand it's not like that for everybody else. And you it's a real treasure that you want to protect and respect, you know what I mean? Yeah, and the freedoms we enjoy are are, are very rare globally speaking. This is not uh this is not the uh the status quo for most of the world, you know, that Broadly yeah. speaking, the rich Western economies enjoy. Uh, but you reminded me of a quote of a, of, of a former colleague of mine uh, when you're talking about this, recognizing how similar we are. Uh, and the quote was, uh, uh, cultures do not meet, people do. Yeah, that's uh, And right. I think that's, a, that's so spot on because it reflects the, exactly what you just said, right? It, it, when, you, when you peel back these, and I view culture as, a, as, a, as almost a software, as a program that, you know, that, that, is, your, that is your program that you're running in or a cultural program that's installed. But when you peel back beyond that, it is all those things, you know, family, caring about your children, getting your food on the table, you know, whether we want to talk about Maslow or not, you know, which often yeah. is brought into this. But, you know, that is, so, that is so spot on. I think it's a really, really important insight. I went to this dinner in an Iraqi house in southern Iraq. They invited me to dinner. So I drove around there in my arm and find a vehicle and park at the front <laughs> Put my gun down, go inside. So, yeah, but I'm in there, and it's the father and the sons are all sitting around the table. And then there's a the kitchen's next door, but there's a sliding door you open with. They push the food out, and you take it. That was the women. They were in the kitchen because they didn't need it at the table, right? And I'm sitting there going, "Oh, I don't think that'd happen at home." <laughs> and I'm thinking, "Oh, that's so different." Anyway, at the end. The head of the house said, oh, can my wife come out and talk to you? And I said, yeah, of course. Anyway, she came out. She sat down and she was the boss of that house. It wasn't any different. That's just the way the rules. And so he just sat down and started grilling me about what the coalition was doing. And he was going, yeah. Like it was both <laughs> the same. It was unbelievable. But you, at first glance, you go, oh, this is totally different in the women are made to cook dinner out the back and don't have a say and it's just a different framework with the same dynamics going on with the same animal in you know with the same urges desires drivers in a different 
environment. I never stressed. She was super informed. She knew everything that was going on and was grilling me about this and that. <laughs> so, you know, you're forever surprised by how similar people actually are. Even when, you know, you don't live in the same place and you don't speak the same language and you've got a different religion and actually it's still like my mum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if we care to actually unpack that more broadly speaking, I think we'd be probably expending a whole lot less money on, uh, on weapons uh, as opposed to sharing meals. And I think that's a, you know, that's a reality. Yeah. I think the problem is, the problem is what I said. It doesn't take many people to blow things apart. There's none, you know, and then I've met people and seen people who, there really is no talking to them. It's, it's a intractable, two completely different views, and they're going to kill you, and you're going to, or, or you're going to have to kill them. You know, well, ISIL's kind of in that space. The the behaviour of that I saw, it's just biggest belief. You know, now there's a lot of people involved in the enterprise who are probably not like that, but some of the core actors, so fully committed to it. So there is that bunch of in, intractable, whether different worldviews come head to head. And then when that's when, you know, use of force and the law and got to have a framework around it because it, unfortunately it has to happen, I think. Do you think we could have prevented that? Had we, you know, played our cards in a different way, come Iraq and, and Afghanistan? And I know it's a big question, but... I, I think, I don't know. I, I mean, I, the ISIL thing took everyone by surprise. Part of it was a modernised version of old ideas, you know, and then using the modern world. So they did have basically a global information campaign and recruited fighters from everywhere using the internet and branding, the big black flag in the back of the ute. Um, they used to play that video all the time when they hadn't had a ute driving around Iraq for a year and a half. If you did, you'd be gone. That was, that was still their brand and it resonated globally. So I think, yeah, predicting what's going to happen next. <laughs> so the solution is you just got to constantly watch it and then do everything you can to defeat the spread of violent extremism. And again, it's a narrative fight. Why am I better off being an Iraqi citizen supporting the government than becoming a ISIS guy and back in a, now a lot of us go, I can't understand why they would do that. Well, they've got grievances. They've got long seated, they don't trust the government maybe. They're influenced by culture and people and tribes and location. So I don't think it ever, the bad news is very hard to kill an ideology or an idea, but you got to keep the counter narrative up against it, you know what I mean? So you just got to keep going and do everything you can. Generational. I mean, I look at Northern Ireland and I go, there's an example of when I was a kid, everyone said that'll never, nothing, that'll never get better. You know what I mean? Can't. Too long. Centuries. Well, look at them now. It's not perfect, but it ain't 1975. And that's down to the Irish, you know, as in both sides of the border. They've done it. They found a way to take a lot of the worst of it away. Now, are those ideas all still there? Yeah. Are there people who still, on all the various sides, hold the centuries old views? Yeah. But somehow they've managed to 
kind of make it better. So I'm not a believer in it can't ever be fixed, but it, often it's generational and it's it's really the people often the those intervening like peacekeepers or coalitions of the willing they can't fix it it's the locals are going to fix it or not yeah. they can help you can help so i think the international community helped in ireland but and you can help or you can hinder as well so it's a so that's an optimistic view i don't think there are intractable places where problems no where you where you're from now now i bet all those things are still there well i mean it's a arguably more divided now not arguably it is more divided now than before the war it is a, they, they yeah. call it a cold piece yeah yeah and then but you find a way to get away from Trebinitsa, you know what i mean so yeah so but i think it just it's generational and takes relentless attention to it Basically, yeah, and I, yeah, and and the, the idea of narrative, I think, is so powerful. Again, I mean, the, the, you know, we and we're seeing it also potentially, you know, work in reverse. You know, US is an example now when it when it was first time appearing in global analyses as a potential place of conflict yeah. you know, of you know civil war, uh, where it's kind of going backwards, and it's all about those narratives, right? It is about the far left and the far right narratives. I call them ideologies because they ultimately fit that definition quite easily they may not be extremist islamic uh etc but you know the right-wing extremist or even the far left extremist ideologies they are again dismantling uh, some of those institutions or have attempted to dismantle some of those institutions so we can also go backwards and i think that's a that's another important point about not resting on our laurels arguably as the west and needing to protect it again yeah i mean americans are our great friends and but it ain't simple and their history is their history is their history. You know, they fought a civil war. I think they had 600,000 people killed in it. They fought a revolution to come into being. You know, they had slavery. They've got a, a fraught environment. So I think it generally defies simple derivation, but, yeah, you're dead right. Like, look at the rise, the impact of the internet and spreading information and misinformation. So that's a big change. And I, if you go back and study the history of the book, so when the book first came out in printing presses, um, before the Civil War, I remember they were forever throwing the printing press where Link, like, um, Abe Lincoln was from, Illinois, in the river, <laughs> because it was printing presses how you got information out, you know what I mean? So at the front of a book, when you open the front of a book, you'll see where it's printed, who printed it. That all came about about trying to verify the legitimacy of a, the information a pamphlet printed by an underground printers saying whatever. So that nothing's new, but in the 21st century, you can be sitting in Australia and you can get stuff from the United States. And it'll find you. Your phone will buzz. Uh, it'll find you. You don't even have to look for it. Yeah. No, that's right. So that we're, we live in an age where, you know, the spread of information and misinformation and access to it makes all of the, I think, clear narratives more important than ever. Uh, and then the relentless, you can't rest on your laurels, like US amazing democracy, you know? They don't, to be fair to them, they never, they don't rest on their laurels. So it's a constant argument about the republic and the freedom and the law. And that's what's, I mean, they're a great democracy.
And that's, but don't come easy. Didn't come easy. Americans, part of their psyche is we made this thing. It wasn't given to us. And that, you know, I think the founding fathers said it, it'll be, what's the line? It'll be a good republic if you can keep it. As one of the founding fathers said that. So like the notion you're always. Yeah. You've got to nurture it. Yeah. yeah and it's not just the Americans. It's us too. You've got to make sure our country stays. And that's, you can't be mandated. It's by everybody agrees, basically. <laughs> and, we, and we've seen just through COVID how quickly this veneer of, oh, yeah. this fragile veneer of society collapses, right? I mean, you know, we had fights over toilet paper in, in, in shopping yeah. centres. I mean, that's a, it's, it's a very fragile, uh, uh, yeah, veneer, I think is a good word, yeah. uh, that can disappear overnight. And I think many nations in the world have, have found that. And, then, and in the 21st century, the capacity to spread fear and inaccuracy is, in fact, you can't even tell the, what's real. It's pretty difficult for normal people to do that. I mean, it's the book again. You can't look at the front page of the book and say, who published this? You know what I mean? You can, but it takes a bit of effort. <laughs> and actually, you know, you could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could be so, 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 so well designed that it's, uh, yeah. Uh, General, you've been very gracious with your time. I, I'm conscious that we're, we're kind of coming right to the end of it, but maybe I can pivot just to, sure. to, towards the end, just on, a, uh, on your recent appointment. Uh, and conscious, obviously, that, you know, you're speaking as Mr. Noble, yeah. but you are now the ambassador for counterterrorism. Firstly, what, what, does that, what does that role even mean? So I'll speak as the ambassador to counterterrorism. So we have an ambassador, a series of thematic ambassadors. So there's one for women, there's one for cyber, and I'm the counterterrorism one. So I kind of have Australia's international engagement lead offshore with our many counterterrorist partners and in the many, many forums that we have. So one of the good, you know, out of tragedies like September 11th and Bali bombings, where we lost so much, you know, we we have got this amazing international network now where we talk to all these countries and stakeholders about a common problem of, you know, violent extremism. So a lot of that comes post-September 11th. It was there before, but it's got much more developed and much more deeper. So, you know, the Australian-Indonesian relationship's un unbelievably positive, you know what I mean? And that came out of the shocking experience of Bali, you know, 88 Australians. Most Australians killed in an attack was Bali bombing in 2002. So we've got really good network of, you know, allies, partners and friends all around the world. And my job's kind of making sure we keep all that going and we stay connected and stay ahead of the curve, you know. So we're seeing right-wing extremism called ideologically motivated violent extremism. So that's the term we use. So, you know, the Christchurch shooter was an Australian. So we've got to stay ahead of the new things as they come and then do our best with all of our friends offshore to share our lessons and be well prepared. So my job's to make sure or help keep that going, basically. Mm, yeah, and I guess that Christchurch example was, I think, the first time we also saw it being broadcast live on Facebook, which I think is a whole new... It's that connectivity um, thing in the 21st century. And it's that has spurned a... There's a thing called the Christchurch Call, which is, you know, led by the Prime Minister of New Zealand and 
lots of countries involved it's on very soon again and it's about countering violent extremism online and what we can do to make sure that behavior can't occur and is stopped and best case prevented from ever happening so these are the that's what i meant by adapting so you know we can't the terrorism of the 1980s in australia was a kind of ethno-nationalist imported from europe thing well now we've got lots of them but we now got to deal with the internet and online radicalization and the digital world so bad news is it's a Never-ending challenge, I think it's persistent. But the good news is we've got lots of friends around the world who are really committed to working with us to keep us and them safe. Hmm. General, I won't I won't push you on that uh, on that role much longer. But I do have to ask you one question that I'll be chastised by a number of people who I've mentioned I'll be interviewing you yeah. uh, if I don't ask. What happened to your third star? I don't know. <laughs> Why did you? Because you were uh, many saw you as being a three-star general in the not-too-distant future. You don't promote yourself, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I kind of, I can't, I mean, in the the chief of the defence force, there's my answer. But the, I mean, I left, one of the reasons I took this job is because it, it, to me, it was the same thing. And uh, I had the most, I say to people, I just had the most amazing career. It was entirely positive. You know, there, it gives you the best days of your life and the worst days of your life. But the, the good ones outweigh the bad ones. So I, I'm just happy where I got. I'm just saying, I mean, I got to do things I never thought I would get to do. And I did everything in the Army I wanted to do, you know, being all in the units I was in, be with soldiers. Uh, so I'm just dodging your question, really. Yeah, and doing it <laughs> remarkably well, I must add. <laughs> I'm a happy man, and I'm still a strong soldier for life, the Americans say, and I'm a strong supporter of the Army and the ADF, and I want our soldiers always to have the very best training and preparation, and I don't want them to learn the stuff I would have to learn it again, you know what I mean? So I'll probably have to put up with lectures from me forever. <laughs> Well, I think from the uh, well from the ranks above and below me, I think you're very much known as a soldier, soldier, or you know, soldiers officer, or whatever term it is. But uh, uh, on that note, General, I want to thank you for giving me so much so much of your time. I really appreciate it. some really really. That's the nicest thing you can say to me, Miss. So you know, it's probably hopefully it's half true. <laughs> well, that that that's been that's been my impression. So uh, uh, yeah, thank you for your service. I think uh, you'll have a remarkable story, and I think we'll watch. It unfold because it's certainly not over as the uh, as our ambassador for counterterrorism. So thanks, mate. Thank you. And, uh, thanks for inviting me on your podcast. I think it's a great thing you're doing. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Voices of War. Just a quick reminder to complete the survey. It will take you only two minutes, and you can find the link in the show notes. Thank you.